Hey everybody, this is Andy, aka Love Retro BTW, across Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch. I do a podcast every Saturday called Cafe BTW, a morning gaming podcast, a retrospective look at the wonderful world of retro gaming, from interviews to guests. Join us every Saturday, like a Saturday morning cartoon, starting at 8 a.m., 11 a.m. Eastern. Also, if you're on Twitter, Please join the brand new retro gaming community, a place to share, connect, and show your love for the retro gaming community. All the links are down below. And remember, enjoy the Gamers Week podcast. This time on Gamers Week podcast. There will be at least one person with a pitchfork who's like, oh, why aren't these voices American? Yeah, probably. Plus, some hair tax and native phoenix down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can we have Final Fantasy 17 set in Texas, please? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Riding chocobos with like cowboy hats on and spurs and things. <laughs> Red Dead Redemption chocobos. <laughs> <laughs> I will be here for you. <laughs> I will be here for you. Somewhere in the night, I'll be passing by. That's Michael W. Smith. <laughs> and now today you are embodying Mr. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> seemingly. Seemingly. Yeah. And I thought this was going to be like you were talking that you were Will Smith and you were going to slap us all. <laughs> Keep my podcast out of I your mouth. Oh God. <laughs> Twinsies. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Gamers Week podcast. Like the name says, we analyze the best, worst, and weirdest headlines of the past week in the video game industry. This is episode 28. Today is Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. And my name is Ryan, a.k.a. Retro Game Brews, a.k.a. Professor Rybread, and I will be your host for this evening. Now, with me in the booth, I have a gentleman. <clears throat> oh, my God. <coughs> it kills you to call me a gentleman, doesn't it? <laughs> it does a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I have with me a gentleman who eats all of his fast food meals in the garage with the lights off. Donnie G, how are you doing today? <laughs> I want to kiss you all over and over <laughs> again till the night closes in. I'm doing well, RGB. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And we also have with us someone who looks at snarky comments and decides to punish people by making them host podcasts for the evening. <laughs> Blue Williams. Blue, how are you doing today? You brought this on yourself. I did. <laughs> <laughs> So we were asking, or I was asking who is hosting tonight. Blue said, well, one of the two of you. And I said, duh. <laughs> and she was like, guess who's hosting tonight? Yep, you just volunteered yourself. I don't need your attitude. <laughs> well, 
why don't we go ahead and jump into our reviews, reactions, and requests for the week. So first up is Drinks with Josh. Ah, Game Gear once spent a summer mowing lawns to get the TV tuner that I just desperately had to have and used maybe twice. (laughs) (laughs) I've all, I always wanted one of those two because it would it was the thought process was that it would be the coolest thing to have a TV tuner on there. Uh, uh-huh. Never actually got one myself. Got a lot of cool accessories for the Game Gear, but never got the TV tuner. Me neither. Of course you did because rich kid. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is Mrs. Lily Martinez. It's like they're selling their souls to stay relevant. That's harsh, but kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> And Dorian the Critic said, I really like Blue Williams' voice and totally agree with her. I, as well, could not care less about multiplayer FPS games, even if they are currently the most successful, lucrative style of gameplay in the video game industry. Hey, I think Dorian should be my new best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Just hire him on as like a hype man. Yeah, (laughs) clearly Dorian has good taste. I'm just saying. (laughs) And now... It's time for the very important poll. Jeez, I think your attitude <laughs> is broken. <laughs> Every Monday on Twitter, we post our VIP, very important poll. If you'd like to participate, follow us on Twitter at GamersWeekPC. So the question for this week was, what is your favorite Tengen? That's Tengen game. Coming in in third place with a really low count at 3.5%, Grindstormer, which I'm not actually familiar with that one. Sliding in at number two, your favorite, my favorite, Gauntlet with 33.4%. Well, clearly not everyone's favorite because it's number two. (laughs) He was talking to a specific person. (laughs) (laughs) Those people who selected Gauntlet. That's who I was referring to. Okay, good, good. Um, But the winner so far this week with an astounding 55.8% is Tetris. Now, you might be thinking, Tetris, oh, I know that game. That's, 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 is that Tengen? Yes, there is a Tengen version of Tetris. Now, if you've ever played Tetris in the arcades, it's a little bit different than what you know from the um, the one that was published. I don't know if it was by Nintendo itself. I, it was. Yep. It was? Okay. Mm-hmm. As you progress, there's actual pieces starting off in the level. They're all jumbled across, and you're, you've gotta, you you have to get enough lines and clear those lines to move on to the next level. And and sometimes those, those pieces get built up onto the top, almost like Tetris 99 if you've played that game. So your job is to... Those pieces start coming down fast, and you're you, you've got to basically start off in the danger zone. Um, danger zone, danger zone. <laughs> I don't really care too much for this particular version of Tetris. I'd rather play the Nintendo version, but to each their own. A lot of people chose this one, and I don't blame them. So let's go and take a look at some of the comments from the other category that came in at seven point three percent. At I am Thomas Wilson says race driving for nostalgia reasons. As a kid who started out with the NES, going to my cousin's house and seeing that game on his PC blew my mind. At Retro Gift Monster says, Rolling Thunder, but Gauntlet has a special place deep in my inferior Fina Kava. (laughs) It's coming in with the the jargon right there. At SMB Flurry says, It's not a great game, but Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was one of the first (laughs) NES games I ever played, and I even had a discussion with Ryan on this one. Discussion is a nice way to put it. (laughs) 
I was sick at home from school and my dad rented it so I would have something to do for the day. And I absolutely loved it. I still do, though I've never beaten it. At Sanity Crypto says Tetris absolutely takes it, but Afterburner was pretty freaking awesome. Yes, it was, sir. And at Team Rails says Whispers, embarrassed as hell, RBI baseball. You shouldn't be embarrassed. You love it. It's your choice. If you're happy with it, then that's it is what it is. <laughs> so taking a look at the games that Tengen had produced, Blue, what is your favorite? So I am one of the ones that voted for Tetris. But I wanted to give a special shout out to Tubin. Do you guys remember Tubin? Oh my God, yes. I do. <laughs> I haven't played Tubin in, I don't know, probably 25 years or something like that. But I have such fond memories of it. I have no idea if it holds up, but it was one of our favorite rentals when we were kids. I think one, because for some reason, it was always there. <laughs> it wasn't one of the <laughs> games that got rented early. So you could always kind of count on Tubin being a standby. Also, I just remember it being really, really fun. So I should see if I can pick that up again and, and try it out. It's an uncommon game, which is strange to say, but uh, you see it every once in a while, as far as, at least from my experience. I don't think I've, I've ever seen it out in the wild, or I definitely would have picked it up. Right. I very rarely ever see it, but I mean, from what I remember of the arcade version, I don't think I've ever played the home version. But the arcade version is pretty fun. Of course, you remember the arcade versions from back in the 80s. They're designed to take your quarter and be as difficult as hell. But I mean, still, it was, it was, it was a one-off fun game. I don't think I've ever played the arcade version of it. Ah. Ryan, what was your choice? Uh, so for me... I actually never was aware of Tengen games back when I was a kid. Really? Like that wasn't a thing. I was I never saw the the black version of a NES cartridge until I got into collecting. I remember thinking like, what the hell is this? Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I was like, is this a repro card? They're like, no, no, no. They, they, Tengen used to make these games. So uh, I don't have any like nostalgia specifically for any of them. The one that I, I like is because it's a, a game that I own, of course, which is Tengen Tetris. And there's, a, there's an entire story behind why it's so rare and uh, well, actually potentially cover that <laughs> later today but it's it's like this piece of almost history uh, that I have in my collection as a result of that and it was it was a game that I was I, I said to myself I gotta get my hands on this uh, and you know I spent a lot of time going to Facebook groups and trying to to purchase one they, they had raffles on Facebook groups back in the days and I was trying to get Tengen Tetris every time. So I probably spent way more on getting that game than I probably should have. Dare we ask how much you spent? Uh, I don't know collectively. Like it was, you would purchase $5 quote unquote tickets, you know? Oh, like, oh, give me three tickets. So I'd spend $15 here, $5 there, $10 there. I think I won maybe one raffle, but it wasn't for Tengen Tetris. <laughs> Actually, I take it back. I won two. They had like a mini raffle for more spots in the bigger raffle, which was for oh, yeah. Little Samson. <laughs> and so I had all these tickets for Little Samson. I'm like, oh, man, this is my best shot. I even looked up the odds. I was like, I have like an 8% chance, which is more than anyone else in this <laughs> this raffle. Never tell me the odds. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't get it. So there it is. But the other part that I like about Tengen Tetris is that it is a two-player option for the nes which regular tetris you cannot do that you can't do two player right. so that's one of the things that i like about it is because me and my wife can play together uh when i whip out the nes 
I could put in Tengen Tetris and yes, phrasing. But uh, yeah, that's my choice. I'm going to go with uh, with Tetris. Donnie, what about you? My choice was Gauntlet. I loved Gauntlet um, on the NES as a kid. I never got to play the original arcade version for this one. But I remember renting this one with with friends who'd stayed the night or stayed the weekend. My, my parents would go out to the bars and it would just be me, my friend, my sister, and one of her friends. And she was older than, uh, than, than I was. So we, we'd be up playing Nintendo games all night. So we'd rent gauntlet from the video store. And because it, it seemed like so difficult at the time, because it was just a maze and trying to remember where things were at. Um, we really got our money's worth with, uh, with gauntlet. I just remember Gauntlet is the the arcade game that would talk to you and be like Red Wizard, or yeah. sorry, Blue Blue Warrior is about to die. Blue Warrior needs food badly. Like <laughs> and then then all like the wave of enemies that come come at you and you're like you're getting hit, so you just hear this oh, 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 oh. <laughs> like that's kind of seared in my brain. They, these kinds of sounds from my childhood are seared in there. <laughs> All right, so why don't we go ahead and shout out our patrons, Blue? We couldn't do what we do without the help of our gorgeous patrons. Here are the generous folks supporting Gamers Week on Patreon. And we have a new patron to announce. Please Yay! give a big welcome to Ramboski. Woo! Thank you, Ramboski. They'll be joining Terry Kinnair, Ducks in Disguise, Jim and Colleen, Games with Coffee, Davey PGH, the Red Ox PDX family, including Shannon and Luke, Zach, huge thanks, Random Retro Dude, Princess Kitty Mew Mew, Rai Rai's Secret Best Friend, Mega Retro Man, Gammatroid, Emo-esque, Bill Tucker, Rai Bread's number one fan, Fruitcake's number one stan, The Wizard of Zardoz, Clayman 71, Great Sayaman 81, BNT Zilla Guy, Geek With That, Crunchy Kong, Share of Snacks, Frank Grande, Love Retro BTW, and Steven Sand. If you like what you hear today, and we really hope you do, please consider joining us on Patreon. Your support helps cover the cost of producing the show, as well as other cool stuff we'll be doing, like prizes and giveaways. You'll also gain access to our weekly patron-only bonus cast called Gamers Week Uncut, Patrons with Benefits. Visit patreon.com slash gamersweek or follow the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, so why don't we go ahead and jump into our headlines. Our headlines segment is proudly sponsored by the Retro Game Club podcast. It's a fantastic family-friendly retro gaming podcast. In each episode, Rob and Hugh pick two games to play and discuss, as well as news, interviews, and other topics. Currently, they are playing through King's Quest VI and Tron. Visit them at RetroGameClub.net or follow the link in the show notes. I've tried to play Tron Arcade so many times in so many different ways, and I cannot play that game. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's challenging. The only one I like is the bikes. The bikes are the fun part. There's also the one, it's almost like a breakout type game uh, or mini game where you're trying to break the barriers to get to the center and everything. And they also got the wonky controllers too on the arcade. Oh, but they're classic. Oh, but they're classic. <laughs> <laughs> got Don Knotts in here. Oh my God. <laughs> you got a nip in the blood, Andy. <laughs> I can, I cannot do, I cannot whistle the damn theme song without laughing. It, no matter how hard I try, try. every time that I try, because no, I'm smiling right now and I can't do it. <laughs> I'll start you off. Ha <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I can't do it. Okay. Good enough for me. <laughs> Maybe we'll come back to it. <sighs> From VGC. <laughs> Producer confirms Final Fantasy 16 uses British English only and no American accents. Speaking to Japanese publication Dengegi Online, Naoki Yoshida said that all of the game's voice and motion capture work was performed by European actors so as not to break expectations from American players that the setting's characters should have British accents. This is especially true for our generation, but there is an image that medieval fantasy equals Europe, made popular by the Lord of the Rings, he said. Even though it's in English, we've been careful not to include any American accents. The decision was made to prevent American players from getting angry. Yoshida recently claimed that the game is near the end of development. That's after he said last December that Final Fantasy XVI's development had fallen almost half a year behind schedule. Yoshida also recently claimed that the game will have a unique approach to difficulty. In an interview with Famitsu, Yoshida explained that the game will have an action-based battle system, similar to something like Kingdom Hearts, rather than a traditional turn-based battle system as seen in most previous Final Fantasy games. So I don't understand what the problem is? It's just, it's a weird thing, I think, to get angry about. And it tracks that that is something that people would complain about, that this fantasy setting in a fantasy world, let's all be honest, does not exist. None of these places in Final Fantasy actually exist. Right. We're going to complain because it's an American accent versus a British accent. That's stupid. But he's right. It would happen. But specifically to not upset American players, Mm -hmm. my thought would be if it's supposed to be in a European setting and there are American accents, wouldn't that upset European players, not necessarily American players? I don't know. That's what I was thinking. Or is it like everyone in America is a pedantic asshole? So So they would get upset because. (laughs) Aren't you the king of pedantics? Uh, yes, but I consider myself to be a unique, rare, and special flower. (laughs) It's time to let that flower bloom, Ryan. Let the flower bloom. It's like, I I don't get mad watching Robin Hood when Kevin Costner has no British accent whatsoever and everyone else around him does. I don't get mad at that. Right. Hey, man, you just killed my daddy. I'm like, Everybody else around him is just like, so Robin of Luxley, you cut me doing nothing. <laughs> to me, this doesn't. This is something trivial to get worked up over. Indeed. Right. But we've all been online long enough to know that people love oh, you yeah. worked up over trivial things. So There will be at least one person with a pitchfork who's like, oh, why aren't these voices American? Yeah. Probably. Listen, hair tax and native phoenix down. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, can we have Final Fantasy 17 set in Texas, please? Yes. <laughs> Riding chocobos with like cowboy hats on and spurs and things. <laughs> Red Dead Redemption chocobos. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> um, but then as far as the second half of the article, uh, Yoshida explained the game will have an action-based battle system similar to something like Kingdom Hearts. I kind of like the sound of that. Um, rather than a traditional turn-based battle system as seen in most previous Final Fantasies, but Final Fantasy hasn't been turn-based since 10. Right. So I don't think anybody was realistically expecting that this one would be turn-based. Hoping, maybe? No. <laughs> Never going to happen. 
Hoping they went back to it. Do you think that's what people kind of want to go back to? Not people, but Ryan. Ryan, Ryan wants, wants it. Ah. Yeah. If they were going to go back to turn-based, they should have done it in the Final Fantasy VII uh, remake. Since that was turn-based uh, yeah. to begin with, they would have right. kept it there, I think, if there was enough interest in turn-based systems. But Another reason why I won't be playing the remake. I played three hours of the remake and gave it up. Did you get to the cat part? Yeah. The cats uh, was like, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember having to hunt down cats in the original. So. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next up from The Verge, Atari is getting a massive historical game collection for its 50th anniversary. Atari is 50 years old, and to celebrate, the company has partnered with the retro game experts at Digital Eclipse on a new anniversary collection that covers five decades of gaming history. It has the somewhat unwieldy title, Atari 50, The Anniversary Celebration, but it also sounds much more involved than a typical classic game bundle. Atari 50 will feature more than 90 games, including six new titles inspired by the classics, from consoles like the 2600, Jaguar, and Lynx, along with archival photos, images, and even interviews. If the name Digital Eclipse sounds familiar, it's probably because the studio has made a name for itself with thoughtful, well-executed classic game collections, like the Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Collection, the Disney Afternoon Collection, and the upcoming Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Cowabunga Collection. When it comes to emulation or bringing classics back or doing really any sort of remastering or reimagining, I don't know if there's anybody who does it better than Digital Eclipse, so they were always our first choice, Atari CEO Wade Rosen told Game Informer. Atari 50 is expected to launch in November for just about every modern platform, PS4, PS5, Xbox, PC, Nintendo Switch, and even the Atari VCS. Ryan, are you going to get this for your VCS? Uh, depends on how much it costs. Because <laughs> right now on the VCS, if you want to get games that aren't originally on it, I think they're five bucks each. And I can go to a bargain store and pick up Atari cartridges for 50 cents a pop. So paying four bucks for a game that I could get a physical copy of, it's just, it's not, it, it hurts me physically, I think, <laughs> emotionally too. So. <laughs> It will greatly depend on how much it costs, but that would actually be a great thing to have on the VCS, all things considered, because I don't want to buy individual games. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I think this sounds actually pretty cool. There are a gazillion Atari game collections out there. So, if Atari was going to do something for their 50th anniversary, which, well, they should, and they should put an extra effort to make it something special... This kind of sounds like the right way to do it. 90 games, six new titles, which is very cool, plus you know, photos, interviews, all this kind of extra stuff. It sounds on paper like it's an actual good celebration of Atari and not something that was just thrown together real fast as a cash grab. Well, we can hope. I mean, we've seen the Midway collections, the Atari collections in the past, and and those have been cash grabs. It's it's an attempt to cash in on the nostalgia of what Atari used to be and the the very beginning, if you will, of of video games at home. And I, I mean, yeah, ninety games sounds great, but it all depends on the cost. Like Ryan said, if it's seventy nine dollars or forty nine dollars, when I can just go and pick up. Most of these titles, and if they're not rare titles, then yeah, I just go down to the, the video game store and like, oh, I'll take this one for 10 cents or a quarter or go to any of the yard sales around my area. But if you want to include Jaguar 
and Lynx games, as well as maybe the, the Atari um, 5200 or 7800, I might take a look at some of those games. But anything mostly from the 2600, if it's, it's, it's full of those games, I think I might pass. I'm just interested because, like you said, if it includes Link games and Jaguar games, that'll be a first for me to get into those because I really haven't touched either of them. I know that me there neither. are a lot of people who are huge collectors of both, so I I would be interested to to at least experience this stuff. And purchasing a Jaguar or a Lynx nowadays is prohibitively expensive. Right, uh, Jaguars go for. Hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Uh, links, I think, are probably $100 to $200 just for the equipment itself, plus all the games that you would purchase. So this may be the one chance I have to play Jaguar and Lynx games without, I guess... Emulation. Doing the emulation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how big the Jaguar or Lynx libraries are. So maybe if they want to take some of the, the top titles from those libraries, maybe... 20 games at most and then fill the rest with the 5200 or the 50 yeah 5200 and the 7800 yeah maybe but to your point about the links uh, i had an opportunity to buy one complex like sealed at the midwest Ooh. gaming classic some dude had it and i've seen this vendor before he was at prge he had it on his table i'm like dare i ask how much that is and he's like well um I don't really even know. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? Like, you should you should know the price of what you're selling. So he had to go to this little flip book. He's like, eh, it's a thousand dollars, and I'm like, what? And he's like, well, it's it's been sitting in my closet. Like, I forgot I had it. And I'm like, you forgot you had a sealed Atari Lynx just <laughs> sitting in your closet. I'd like to believe that, but I I don't. And he's like, I'm not in any hurry to sell it. So, I mean, if, if it doesn't sell, I'll just go and put it back in the closet. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I've got a like a sealed little Samson in my closet. I yeah. totally <laughs> forgot about that. Right. Didn't know I had it. Um, the price point of this thing is, is what I think is the biggest question. For sure. Because yeah. if it has the Jaguar and the Lynx library, which like you guys, I've never touched those. And I hear really good things specifically about the Jaguar library. But if it's got those two plus the six new titles that I would like to check out. So this might be really worth getting if it's not ridiculously overpriced because Atari got to Atari. I would love to see as well. Of course, we interviewed Howard Scott Warshaw and he created a game that never got released officially until 2004 through Atari age called Saboteur. I wonder if that might be one of the six titles. I mean, I'm fingers crossed, right? <laughs> Inspired by the classics or one of the 90 games. But I think that's a game that uh, would be a treat for a lot of people. You could slap on there. Hey, this is Howard Scott Warshaw. Yars Revenge, E.T. Where's the last arc? Just so you, so you know who this person is. <laughs> yeah. And have that finally kind of get its day in the, you know, a day in the sun, if you will. So six new titles inspired by the classics. What that says to me is that they're taking something like maybe, I don't know, combat and kind of, you know, and you remember combat, that's the tank, um, or the two tanks on opposite sides. And you have this little maze to where you'd point your tank, your tank's turret and shoot a projectile and it would bounce and you'd try to do some weird kind of math like, oh, if it's going to hit this angle, it's going to go through here, it's going to hit them. And there you go, I win. That's what I'm projecting them kind of doing, making maybe taking something like that and making it more modern with like a 3D type field of vision. Gotcha. I, I just I, I don't know what type of 
you know, what new titles or what new um, IPs they're talking about possibly giving us. <laughs> Or maybe it's like Action 52 where they just try to slap stuff together. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Please, anything but that. <laughs> Inspired by the classics, baby. Classics with like an asterisk. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> classics with a K. All right, next up from Games Radar, the Mega Drive Mini 2 console is getting a $150 controller. Hmm. Yeah. Sega is set to release a CyberStick replica to go alongside its newly announced Mega Drive 2 mini console. While the console itself is expected to retail at 900 or 9,980 yen, around $75, the operational CyberStick replica will cost double that at 19,800 yen, which is around $150. Courtesy of Famitsu, we now know it will look and function pretty much as those with long memories will recall, complete with a stick, a throttle, and the ability to switch for both right and left-handed use. We don't, however, yet have the confirmation if the peripheral will be available outside of Japan. Sega is planning on releasing more remakes, remasters, and spinoffs between now and March 2023. Confirmation came during the company's recent financial presentation in which it forecasts an increase in sales partly due to a significant increase in new title lineups. Further in the presentation, it was revealed that a significant part of its strategy for the new release is to prolong the life of existing IP with remakes, remasters, and spinoffs. It specifically referenced games like Sonic Colors, Ultimate, Super Monkey Ball Banana, Man- <laughs> Banana Mania, and the Yakuza spinoff, and Judgment sequel Lost Judgment. How are you going to make a controller that costs more than the console itself? Sega, you are doing it again. (laughs) Double what the actual little mini console costs. Holy crap. (laughs) I, 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 what, what, this, this sounds like classic 90 Sega. You shot yourselves in the foot back then, and guess what? You've reloaded the barrels, and now you're taking out the other foot. (laughs) Am I wrong? No, you're not. But at least to give them a little benefit of the doubt, the Mega Drive Mini is not for the West. It's for Japan. That's correct. And maybe in Japan, they are all gung-ho for a controller that costs twice what the little (laughs) console costs. Uh, I know it hurts. It does. It hurts so bad. Everybody <laughs> hurts. It, and I know this is set for a Japan only release and I hopefully will be picking one up um, to bring one stateside, but $150 controller for a $75 console that this is your what third iteration of it. Like I, like we talked about before, I just think it's a bad move. Sega. And I think this is the first official one from them. The other one was at games was doing those ones mm-hmm. in the past. And those, those were poorly done. So fingers crossed that this is done the right way. I pre-ordered one. Oh, <laughs> on no. Japan, Amazon. And I gotta be honest. There's a part of me, not a huge part, but just a little bit that wants to pick up the $150. <laughs> just as a, like a weird flex or. No, I, 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 it sounds super cool just the way it's set up. So I'd be curious as how it plays. $150 is a lot to spend on curiosity. Again, yeah. I probably won't, but there's part of me <laughs> that's just going, 
It's going right. Just buy it. Just what do you do? Just buy it. Come on. It's not like it's a big deal. Come on, man. <laughs> it's this little devil sitting on my shoulder that every time I go to the retro store it makes me spend way more than I buy. <laughs> right. <laughs> makes you. You're a victim, right? Right. I am a victim. Thank you. Thank you for helping realize that. You're me. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> my hope is that this is just more of like a niche thing for people that they aren't betting all of their, their money on this $150 controller that they assume everybody's going to get. Like it's, it's not their version of the switch pro controller. Right. Right. And I have this controller. It's nothing special. You have this original controller. I do. I do. I have the original cyber stick and I've used it maybe a handful of times. I really haven't found a game yet where it, it specifically fits. You know, if I, if anything else, I'll use my, my original six button controller. Honestly, it's, it's mostly fighting games from my experience in the past, at least. Hmm. It's basically a fight stick, more or less. Are you big into fighting games there, Rybred, that you need this? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not not into fighting games at the moment. He was on the circuit back in the 90s. Right, because the six-button <laughs> controller will not do. You have to have the cyber stick. Correct. Okay. I need to be that guy. Don't be that guy. If you just uh, if you don't get the cyber stick and you stick with the six button controller, you can always blame that when you lose. Right. That's a great point. I'm just here to help you out, bud. You're gonna be saying that no matter which controller you use, so there you go. Shut up, Donnie. (laughs) (laughs) Donnie. Yes. You're up. No, I'm not. Uh-huh. Oh, yes, I am. Sorry. Sorry. I was like, sorry. <laughs> that was such a wrong confident section. no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I had scrolled down to the top three new releases. I totally missed the other parts. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> From Mixbag, the 90s had the best video game music. New study reveals. A new study has found that the 90s had the best video game music of all eras, with a collective 220,892,769 views. The study which analyzed YouTube video views found that the 2000s was the second most popular decade for video game music, followed by the 2010s and lastly, the 80s. The song Techno Syndrome from Mortal Kombat has amassed an astounding 141,741,111 views on YouTube, taking the top spot. Second place to Techno Syndrome is Still Alive from 2007's Portal. This track by Jonathan Colton has a more humorous tone than the Mortal Kombat track and has amassed 43,039,999 views on YouTube, leaving Techno Syndrome well in the lead for the top spot. The study also found that fighting, adventure, and puzzle were the top three genres of video games where music was most popular. Fighting topped this chart with 165,620,231,000 views across songs on YouTube. So at first, when I heard the, the, the title of this, I was just thinking to myself, the 90s had the best video game music, New Study Finds, which was conducted by a bunch of millennials. <laughs> <laughs> That's all this is. You have people that are longing for the days of yesteryear, and they're yes. like, yep, yep, I love this song, and I've clicked on this. I, I know they probably registered my IP address, so one click from my computer, that's it. That's all. And even though I've watched it like 10,000 times, but I go over to my grandma's house, I go down to the library, I go down to the coffee house, and yes, that's my, my click equals more likes, and there you go. I'm going to turn this into the 90s had the best video game music. That's exactly <laughs> what that is. 141 million times? Eh, people are desperate. 
that's a lot of millennials being desperate (laughs) (laughs) with a lot of unique IPs. I'm going to check out, actually, I'm going to add to this count, Techno Syndrome. I have to see what this is. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm familiar with this one. I mean, obviously, I would imagine that at least. When you hear it, you'll know it. Yeah. Yeah. Mortal Kombat! Is it that one? I have to watch a flow progressive computer ad, whatever. Yeah. Test your might. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, of course. Yeah. It's classic. But was that in the the game? That specific track? I thought it just uh, drew from the tracks in the game, like the test your might and the Mortal Kombat. I don't It's in the movie, I know that. I guess the, the the term video game music is kind of a broad brush, I guess, then? I guess. But I mean, here's why I think it's legit and not just a bunch of desperate millennials. <laughs> <laughs> because you think about the soundtracks that the 90s had to offer. Like there was Toe Jam and Earl. Mm-hmm. There was uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. There was Donkey Kong Country. There was Super Metroid. There was several Final Fantasies to choose from. All of them amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, Mario music, of course. Zelda music, of course. And Chrono Trigger. Come on. So, I mean, obviously, we're all big 90s fans. We want the 90s to win, but... Do you really think another decade could top all of those amazing soundtracks? And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the music was a key component of the game in the 90s. Because obviously, from an, a uh, visual perspective, it was difficult to paint what they wanted to for your imagination. So the music played kind of an integral role in trying to build the world around you. Mm-hmm. Where later on, it, it, it was a part of the gaming experience, but I don't think it drove even things like the story. A lot of times what you see, especially when it comes to Final Fantasy games, RPGs, the music pushes the story in the direction. It tells you what emotions to feel and when. Where right. I don't know if that's necessarily the case in, in modern or games past the 90s. I don't know. I'm, I know that when I play modern RPGs, it seems to be, or, you know, action RPGs, I guess I should probably say, it seems to be mostly just atmospheric music. As you wander through the world, the music is not tied to any specific character or event that you may encounter. It's just background music that's kind of meant to fit no matter where it is that you may wander in that open world, which is fine, but I don't think it hits as hard as it used to back with the turn-based JRPGs would have the specific motifs within their soundtrack that really would drive home those emotional moments. We I mean, just think about like the opening scene to Final Fantasy VI where, you know, the, the Magicite armor walking through the I, blizzard. I, I, hold, hold on. I'm sorry. Which one? <laughs> We're going to do this again. Six. <laughs> it's the one that comes after five, but not before uh, seven, right? Six. Why don't we move on? <laughs> <laughs> but just thinking about that that opening scene, that, that sets the tone for the entire right. game. Uh, I'm trying to think of modern games that do that, and nothing comes to mind. I'm sure there are great soundtracks on games. I mean, if you think about it, Shovel Knight, it's a part of the game. Are you going to make me play my Hollow Knight card again and make Ryan <laughs> whine about it? Hollow Knight has a great soundtrack. Do not get me wrong on that one. But for the amount of titles that it, we had in the 90s that just like the soundtrack was absolutely insane. I, I just I don't think we are privy to that anymore. Right. Well, and you think about it, too. Hollow Knight and Shovel Knight are both neo-retro titles anyway, mm-hmm. the way that they're developed. So they are 
in a way, trying to capture the magic of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Right. So they are definitely came out past the 90s, but they're kind of 90s games at the end of the day. I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> Sustained. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why don't we go ahead and take a look at our top three new releases for the week. All right, first up is DNF Duel. Platforms are the PS5, PS4, and PC. Action fighting at its extreme. One of the most popular and widely played RPGs in the world, Dungeon and Fighter is now back as a 2.5D action fighting game. Choose from 16 charming characters, each with their own distinct skills and personalities. Outsmart, outplay, or downright beat up your opponents and become the master of the ultimate will. Little Noah, Scion of Paradise, out on PS4, Switch, and PC. Join the genius alchemist, Noah and her cat. That's a tough phrase. Genius alchemist. (laughs) Noah and her cat companion, Zipper, as they explore ancient ruins to uncover the secrets hidden within. Create unique teams and combos from 40-plus recruitable allies in this casual but compelling game. And finally, Cuphead, the delicious last course. It's been 84 years. Out on PS4, (laughs) Xbox One, Switch, and PC. (laughs) Another helping of classic Cuphead action awaits you in Cuphead, the delicious last course. Brothers Cuphead and Mugman are joined by the clever, adventurous Ms. Chalice for a rollicking adventure on a previously undiscovered Inkwell Isle. With the aid of new weapons, magical charms, and Ms. Chalice's unique abilities, players will take on a new cast of fearsome, larger than life bosses to assist the jolly chef salt baker in cuphead's final challenging quest so out of these three what do you want to play most ryan uh probably going to go with little noah i am terrible at cuphead so i can fully admit that one (laughs) (laughs) it's a frustrating controller thrower game for me so rather than put my cholesterol higher than it needs to be (laughs) and have to double up on my uh, mental health meds. I think I'm going to avoid Cuphead. I'll watch other people play it, I think. Uh, But uh, Little Noah, I've heard some things about it and it's available on Switch. So that's, that's a plus in my book. Might as well check it out, but I'm not like, oh my God, I need to get this. Uh, DNF Duel hmm, doesn't seem like it's something that would be up my, my alley, if you will. So if I had to pick one for the three, little Noah's in. All right. What about you, Donnie? I have a guess. Hmm. What could I choose this week? I'll go out on a limb. It's a big risk. Okay. I'm going to guess you're going to go with Cuphead. Yes! Oh my Cuphead. God, I'm so amazing. We did it. <laughs> Cuphead, the delicious last course. Um, I played... Cuphead a couple of years ago for the first time and absolutely fell in love with it. It's a very tough platformer. And I think that's actually about the, about the same time that I met blue on Twitter and right. she stopped in <laughs> um, on one of my streams and just, I was having such a hell of a time with it. This game does such a good job of making your eyes follow one thing. And then all of a sudden a projectile comes and shoots up your butt right. and you're dead. And I, I was like, I, I can't keep track of all this. So I sat there and played it and played it and played it and got familiar with it. And it took a long time and I was able to complete it. And then I beat it on difficult. And I thought that was a great accomplishment. And I didn't want to go back and do all the pacifist runs and all that stuff. I was like, you know what? I beat it on normal. I beat it on difficult. I love the game, but that that's it. I'm done. 
And I see my my sons playing it. They love the game. I've been waiting for a sequel to it. I I love it. And this to me is hands down the game I'm going to pick as soon as it comes out. Right. Yeah, I remember that stream. You were at the um it's like the carnival boss. I don't know remember its name. Carnival boss. Where it's like the roller coaster goes through uh, yeah, the level. Yeah, yeah. It sucked. And uh, you were struggling. You had definitely <laughs> angered the cuphead gods, but I remember that stream. But I didn't break anything. I didn't I didn't punch a hole in my desk. I didn't break my controller. <laughs> Is that because people were watching? Oh, uh, well, no, because I've done that <laughs> on stream before. I've, I've punched a controller and it's pretty stupid. But as difficult as that game is, it didn't make me want to do that. Um, I, I think it's very challenging and very fun. Right. But it's also very fair. It, it, to be fair. To be fair. What's your choice for this week? I'm also going to go with Cuphead. Um, I looked at Little Noah a little bit. It looks like a roguelike, I think, which are often fun. But... I have a lot of indie roguelikes in my backlog, and I'm not sure I really need another. Yeah, what's going to make this one different? Yeah, unless it turns out to be exceptional. So I'll kind of wait and see what the the word is on Little Noah, but I'm definitely going with Cuphead, the delicious last course. I got about two-thirds of the way through Cuphead, which is my MO to get mostly through a game and then get distracted with something else. (laughs) Squirrel! Yep, pretty much. So I need to go back and finish that, but I'm definitely going to pick this up. Even if I don't get to it for a while, I know that it will be worth playing. All right, so why don't we go ahead and talk about our giveaway. Thanks to our friends at Grid Studio, we are giving away a Grid Game Gear. Grid unfolds and restores retro items like Blackberries, iPods, and gaming handhelds into an amazing collage frames, and they are providing us with a second Game Gear collage to give away for free. So uh, this is a $229 value, so we are super excited to announce our winner. So Donnie, can you give me the traditional drum roll, please? <clears throat> sure. You don't mess with tradition. <laughs> no, you don't. And switch it to Andy Griffith. Well, congratulations to Frank Grande. Frank, congrats. Woo! Nice one, Frank. So if you didn't win this time, you can enter code WEP15. That is Wesker Eggman Pikachu. Pikachu. And number 15 at checkout and save 15% and let them know that Gamers Week podcast sent you. So again, big, big congrats to Frank. All right. So why don't we go ahead and jump into our main topic for tonight from Nintendo Life. Every game and trailer from the Nintendo Direct Mini Partner Showcase June 2022. The June 2022 Direct Mini Partner Showcase has come and gone and left us with a host of fresh announcements, release dates, surprise drops, and other tidbits to feast on. It may not have been a full fat first party Nintendo Direct or full fat. Is that right? They're saying it was light. <laughs> it was it was a diet Nintendo Direct. I just I, I've never heard that like expression like the the full fat. <laughs> It just one calorie Nintendo Direct. Right. <laughs> not even enough. <laughs> it may not have been the full fat first party Nintendo Direct fans have been anticipating all June, but there's something for everyone to chew on. <laughs> Bad jokes here. <laughs> in this 25 minute presentation. They're really going hard on this theme. 
Right. Mm-hmm. However, we don't actually have time to cover every game, so here are the highlights. Capcom's Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak expansion got a meaty launch trailer to celebrate <laughs> its upcoming release on June 30th. The trailer itself showcases some slick gameplay footage alongside a story cinematic. Towards the end of the trailer, we got a look at the roadmap plan for the game, with free title updates coming in August, autumn, winter, and 2023. These will include new monsters and a new locale called Forlorn Arena. Following rumors earlier today that Yoko Taro and Platinum Games near Automata might be coming to Switch, the announcement has been officially made in today's Nintendo Direct Mini, Partner Showcase. Dubbed near Automata, the end of Yorha Edition, which was released for PC and PS4 back in 2019, it's launching on the Switch on October 6th, 2022. Lorelei and the Laser Eyes, a brand new mysterious adventure game, was announced during the Nintendo Direct Mini Partner Showcase and will be launching on Nintendo Switch in 2023 from publisher Annapurna Interactive. It will be a timed console exclusive for the Switch. The game is promised to deliver a chilling tale and will be a modern take on puzzle adventure games. Super Bomberman R2 has been announced for the Switch and will be launching in 2023. The game will feature an expanded story mode along with an all-new castle battle mode in which you'll need to team up to build castle defenses while your opponents work out their best method of attack. The trailer boasts an incredible amount of content for the game, which will apparently blow your mind. So we'll see how that goes. (laughs) Mega Man Battle Network Legacy Collection has been announced for the Switch and will be making its way to the console in 2023. Originally launched for the GBA, the collection will feature 10 games total with additional extras such as a gallery and a music mode with over 150 songs from across the series. The game will launch physically with all 10 games included. However, digital versions will be split into Volume 1 and Volume 2 and be sold separately. Pac-Man World is getting a remake. Launching on August 26, Pac-Man World Repack is a complete remake of the 1999 platformer. You'll be heading out to save your kidnapped family from being taken to the dreaded Ghost Island over the course of a variety of levels. You'll also be able to pre-order a special edition dubbed as the Chrome Noir Chogokin Bundle, which comes with a figurine and a bonus in-game DLC skin. Return to Monkey Island, the eagerly awaited sequel from creator Ron Gilbert, has been confirmed for launch on Nintendo Switch. Better yet, the Switch version will be the first console to see its release alongside the PC. The game sees the return of protagonist Guybrush Threepwood in a game showcasing some radically different art style. No firm release date has been set, but we will be diving back into the world of Monkey Island later this year. In today's Nintendo Direct Mini Partner Showcase, Ubisoft has revealed that Mario plus Rabbit Sparks of Hope is launching on the Switch on the 20th of October. The segment in today's Nintendo Direct Mini also highlighted a new battle system with free movement rather than a grid for turn-based battle. Square Enix has announced Harvestella, an ambitious-looking life sim RPG launching on the Switch on November 4th. In a vibrant and colorful world, players will tend their crops, oh, is this Farmville? Befriend the townsfolk, <laughs> overcome threats, discover the origins of the world, and the truth behind the calamity along the way. Farm, cook, craft, make friends, and engage in battle. That's real life. Switch instantly <laughs> between a wide variety of jobs like the fighter who unleashes quick sword techniques the Shadow Walker who deals lethal blows with twin swords, or the Mage who specializes in magic attacks to be victorious. 
take on strong enemies by targeting their weak points and then eliminate them with a powerful double break attack. And finally, we've already had a ton of speedy Sonic Frontiers trailers this month, but today's Nintendo Direct Mini gave us an extra taste of what to expect from the Blue Blur's open zone game. Today's trailer gave us a first look at the game running on Switch, and it looks surprisingly smooth. The biggest reveal is a new area called Cyberspace, hmm. which will hide <laughs> challenges for you to complete. Some of the levels in this area look like they're based on levels from Sonic's history with a Green Hill-based area and something that looks like Metal Harbor from Sonic Adventure 2. Here, you'll unlock keys that will help you progress even further. Whether that's in the main story or just to unlock more challenges, we'll have to wait and see. So taking a look at this, Donnie, what's the first one that sticks out to you? Is something either you're excited about or you're disappointed about? (laughs) Disappointed. Mm Um, Sonic Frontiers, I'm still curious about. Return to Monkey Island, that's one of those games, it's a puzzle game, I I like it, but then again, I don't because of the whole, the niche way of thinking with solving some of these puzzles. I've checked the art style, and I don't care for it. It makes me think of... Controversy, right? Right. It it makes me think of the the Zelda game, um, the... If I'm thinking correctly, and help me out here, the Minish Cap, the one with like the little cell shading cartoon character link. Uh, well, they did a couple cell shaded ones, didn't they? Right. Yeah, I think that's the first one I saw, and I just like switching to that kind of art style just completely turned me off. I've never played that game, so if this is the art style you're going with, I gotta say it it doesn't seem appealing. Yeah, that's been a. A kind of a hot topic over the last couple months. A lot of people online agree with you, and I'm among them. When you look at the classic game and then you look at the new one, it's it seems very clearly to my eyes to be a downgrade, but then the creator, Ron Gilbert, really likes it and is kind of pushing back against the fans who don't like it. But shouldn't that be what goes on is that the people who create these games make it how they... Like, this is, this is Ron Gilbert's story. This is... He's worked... I think on every single one of these things. So it's, it's, it's his vision. And I, I think this is a case where he doesn't care what the, the audience thinks. He's going mm-hmm. to do it however he likes it because it's his creation. And if you don't like his creation, you don't have to, you don't have to interact with it. You don't have to buy it. Right. Um, but beyond that, uh, like you said, games with coffee saw his things in this new Sonic frontiers footage that made him excited. Mm-hmm. It is true. They did show some footage of, of a Green Hill looking area, like a 3D realized Green Hill looking area. Maybe if you're a big Sonic fan like he is, that's enough to get you excited about this. But I'm still <laughs> I'm still waiting for that thing. The thing that says you got to play Sonic Frontiers. And I haven't seen it right. yet. Um, let's see. Going back. Near Automata. Like this says, this collection was released three years ago. Right. I already have it elsewhere. I'm not really sure why it needs to be on switch and i don't know unless we're just trying to collect them all as far as consoles are concerned but <laughs> if you after all these years still haven't picked up near automata then hey now's your chance it'll be on right. switch the game that i saw that i actually was most excited for was this lorelei and the laser eyes it's kind of this noir looking game with like a black gray and white palette and little red accents it looks kind of spooky. It's a puzzle adventure game. This looks like something I want to pay more attention to when it comes out. And the release, or at least the, the mini part for this, was really short. 
Right, was, super if, short. If you, if you blink, you could have missed it. Right. Which maybe I'm okay with. If it's if you don't have a lot to say, maybe it's better that you don't say uh, you know more than you should. I guess. I guess, but I mean, we spent a lot of time on Nier Automata, which everybody already knows all about. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't that they didn't have a lot to say. Maybe it was just the Nintendo said you get twenty seconds. That's true. But again, it piqued your interest, it and did. I'm fine with that. The visuals were enough to pique my interest. What about you, Rye Brad? What What did you see? Um, similar. W- take on sonic so i won't belabor the point on that one uh with super bomberman r2 though uh that i love super bomberman Uh, i've always loved bomberman games i've used them to do tournaments so naturally have been a fan i like this kind of cool concept that they have so it's it's like one player versus uh, it's like a group of like anywhere between seven to to 15 folks i'm not 100 sure on the numbers so please do not crucify me for that but get him uh (laughs) (laughs) you're one player defending against a bunch of other players and that to me sounds like a tower defense game but against real players and that sounds fun as hell so i think that's something i definitely am going to be checking out i definitely want to be the person that sets up the tower defense and is the person kind of in the in the background with because they showed like one character had this huge sword as well so the obviously if you're defending you've got all these extra goodies to play with Uh, i think it could be a lot of fun and maybe just maybe doing game nights with that could be a blast. So that was actually a question I had, whether you, what, what the online population will be for it. Cause I Mm -hmm. remember uh, super was Bomberman 64 or something. The one that was, it's not that old, but they're already discontinuing services for it because not enough people were playing it. Right. It's, it's not 64. It's a super Bomberman R. Okay, well, whichever was the most recent one that was on Stadia and all that. The Stadia exclusive, remember? And then they bailed on Stadia to see if that would save it, and it didn't save it. I would feel very cheated if I bought something recently that these game companies were like, well, not everybody's playing it, so we're just going to stop support for it. Okay, so does that mean I can't play it anymore? If it's it's an online-only game... I guess that's the risk you take when you buy an online-only game. uh, Now that you mention it, it might have been... Bomberman 64. I'm pretty sure because it was 64 players at a time. Right. Right. They had like, you know, what is it? Like eight different rooms or whatever. Right. Yep. So if not enough people were interested in that, I wonder how this castle mode will work out in this one. It's going to be drawn in the people. (laughs) All all dozen of us. There are dozens. Well, then you can all play together in one game. I got to be honest with you, though, like when I played Bomberman, it wasn't online. I played a few matches online and it was there were people that were way better than me and it made it frustrating. But most of the time I would play Bomberman was with, you know, our small group of friends, like, uh, you know, do a game night and just hop on Bomberman and play a free for all with four people in the match. Right. Mm -hmm. That's fun. That's that's all I needed. So the one I'm not going to check out which may be surprising to some people is Mega Man Battle Network. Yeah. I've never gotten into the Battle Network games. So grid-based Mega Man? Yeah. <laughs> it's not what makes Mega Man fun. So why why is Mega Man in this game? Is it's like the the big th- wow. part of this. There right? were a lot of them though. 10 games in total. Oh, yeah. That's oh, yeah. crazy. Obviously people liked them, but I'm it's just not, not one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's not what I think of when I think Mega Man. It's like they put Mega Man in a soccer game, <laughs> they put him in a grid-based RPG-style game. Like this, this is not Mega Man. 
Mega Man needs to be jumping on stuff and shooting his pea shooter. Pew, pew, pew. Well, didn't they do the same thing with Mario? I mean, they put Mario in everything that you can imagine. They're just trying to see what works with it, what people will buy. What can Mario not do, though? Uh, time machines he can't do. He can't do a game where his <laughs> name is in the title. <laughs> Hotels is another one. Right. Uh, his name's in the title, but he's not actually in the game until later where he's missing. Can't do that one. But most of the time they hit a home run, like Mario Kart, Mario Party, those types of games that aren't specifically Mario platforming are still fantastic. It's just, I don't know if Capcom has the ability to do that. With Square Enix, uh, another Harvest style game. This looks like it's Stardew Valley meets like Xenoblade Chronicles. Right. And yeah, I don't need another game like that. <laughs> I wasn't into Animal Crossing. I've never been no. into Stardew Valley. No. Me neither. Those are big though. Those kind of. Oh, of course. Uh, farming life sim games are huge and people play them forever. So it makes sense that everybody would want to have their own. Yeah. I would be more interested in the fighting aspect of this game and would pretty much just ignore everything else, but that's not a good enough reason to buy it. Especially coming from Square Enix. It's going to be a full price game. Yes, it absolutely will be. Yep. And the last thing I'll say is that monster hunter, uh, I'm glad they, they're coming out with an expansion for folks adding to it, that there's additional gameplay elements that are available. But I've tried so hard to get into Monster Hunter Rise, and I just I can't do it. It's, as I understand, a lot of people 100% love it. But for me, when you go into the game, the buildup for it creates a lot of anxiety for your first battle. And then you get into that first battle. And I lose, and I'm losing, I'm losing. <laughs> there's, like, <laughs> there's like no reward system into the game built in early enough. Uh, I've been told the key is to go alongside with people who are you know more skilled within the game so that it's easier for you. But I'm not that kind of guy. I just want to rush in and just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't I don't want to learn strategy. I don't want to take time to learn the controls. <sighs> I just want to jump in and start wailing on something. Which is like what retro games are about. You just go. <laughs> what? Just go retro wrong. games are all about learning what you do. And if you don't, if you don't have it memorized, you get your ass handed to you. Later in the game. Like, you know, <laughs> no, in the right first away. couple of minutes, though. <laughs> I can get through. I, like the first time I played Ninja Gaiden, I got to the boss. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard to get to the boss. After that, it's fucked. But. <laughs> <laughs> Redacted. Yeah. <laughs> Before that, it's it's a lot simpler. I just want a game that like you know lets me wail on some enemies real quick, so I feel confident about myself, and then kick my butt. He needs his ego built up a little bit before yep. he can actually do things. Just a little. At least you're honest. <laughs> <laughs> know thyself. All right, before we move on, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. Gaming History 101 is proudly sponsored by the Leaders Podcast. It's a show where three friends and occasional guests play games about video games, including trivia, game show games, and more. Here's this week's trivia question. The first entry wasn't officially published until four years after its inception, but with re-releases, updated version, and spinoffs, even as recent as 2021, this is by far the longest running video game franchise in history. Tune into the latest podcast this Wednesday to hear the answer. You can find the latest on your favorite podcast platform. We will have their links in the show notes for you to find. So do you guys know the answer to this question? 
No, I don't. It's probably going to be something that's going to make me go, oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Not necessarily, oh, of course, but you're going to go, oh, okay, I guess I could see that. The oldest video game franchise that I can think that's a franchise would be Pac-Man. Right. Um, This one is older than Pac-Man. Not by much, though. Um, Mario? Mario's not older than Pac-Man. No, it's right around the same... Mario was in Donkey Kong, so I, I, I wouldn't really call that part of the Mario franchise, but... Yeah, to hear that it's not Pac-Man, I'm confused. It is. Redacted. What? <laughs> wow, that that absolutely blows my mind. Well, there you have it, man. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, so thank you for coming, students. Please take your seats. Welcome back to Professor Rybred's Gaming History 101. In today's lesson, as promised, we're going to talk about the legal battles between two companies that can claim they were number one at one point in their tenures. We're, of course, talking about Nintari, Nintari, Atari <laughs> versus Nintendo. <laughs> they, they merged together. They're like Voltron. They became better, right? Right. It's like those, those the mashups that I keep seeing everybody doing with the AI generator. It's, it's Nintari. I'm going to type that and find out if that comes up with anything. Else. Oh, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> do it. <laughs> All right, so why don't we at least start at the beginning here? So to begin with, I wanted to start off by giving the background of the company Tengen. Now, we've already talked about Tengen earlier today, so I know that you guys are familiar with Tengen. But for most of us, we associate the the company Tengen with those black, oddly shaped NES cartridges uh, back in the 80s and 90s. Right. Uh, But mm, not everyone knows that they were, in fact, a subsidiary of Atari games. Atari Games uh, actually split off from the official Atari brand uh, after being sold by Warner Communications in 84 and chose to publish games under the name Tengen. Both Atari and Tengen got their names from the chess-like board game Go, uh, where Atari is like is the term used to say check, like you would in chess to let somebody know that, that their next turn might be their last. And Tengen refers to the center of a Go board. So... Very, very inventive, guys. <laughs> but Tengen, of course, uh, you know, in the in the mid '80s, they're they're looking to get into the market for selling NES games, and of course, they're going to get into that market because it's the hottest selling video game system in the world. But the problem is that Nintendo had some rules that made it difficult for third party developers to create games for the platform. So, for example, publishers for the Nintendo were only allowed to release five games a year on the system, which is why you see games that were released for Konami and ultra games, because that was their way of kind of getting around that, that five game limit for the year. If you were selling games outside of Japan, you weren't allowed to use your own chips. You had to use the chips from Nintendo. So uh, one classic example of that is the game Contra outside of Japan. It's a watered down version of Contra, in the Japanese version, there's a lot more movement in the background. There's cutscenes. There's a map uh, in between levels, just like uh, Ghosts and Goblins. But because the chip had to be a proprietary one from Nintendo, they had to remove some of that stuff just to make it fit. Uh, another example is that when you produce games to sell from Nintendo, you would provide them with the information, so the code for the actual game. Nintendo would put it on a chipset for you. And then they would sell you back your game (laughs) and the cartridge. So 
it was this strange draconian setup where they were doing a lot of obviously quality control, but then also limited the profit potential of a lot of these companies. You know, if you can only release five a year, you have to dumb down games, you have to buy it from them. It's almost like it was like a pyramid scheme in right. a way. Right? <laughs> it was like they controlled every aspect of the market. Naturally, they were kind of considered a trust in that sense where they're a monopoly, right? They control almost all the, you know, components of the marketplace in order to, to kind of push out games. So naturally a company like Tengen, I mean, I, I don't think anybody liked it, but Tengen didn't like the agreement that they had signed on to with Nintendo. And so they kind of sought to circumvent the process and essentially create their own carts for distribution. There's only one problem with that is that Nintendo on all of their cartridges had a thing called the 10 NES chip, which locked out all other games from working on the system. So if you didn't have that chip, it wouldn't communicate the necessary code for the system to play the game. So it's almost like it was a gateway, right? Every game that you plugged into your NES looks for that code. If it doesn't see it, it doesn't work. And it was their way of eliminating the third party. But a lot of that came from really the Atari system itself. There were so many Atari games that were poorly done. There was also companies that were making Atari games that weren't Atari as well. So there were different looking cartridges. It was an awful mess in the early 80s. So Nintendo was doing this as a way of quality control. But that also meant that other companies who were building games for them obviously weren't making as much as they wanted to. So With the 10 NES chip, though, it was like an encrypted chip that, as far as they were concerned, they weren't able to necessarily crack. In fact, they spent a long time at Tengen trying to reverse engineer the 10 NES chip, even to getting to the point in which they were chemically separating parts of the chip to see if they could crack it, right? (laughs) It just didn't work. They spent countless hours and uh, a lot of money to try to reverse engineer this thing and just couldn't do it. So... In 88, Tengen's lawyers actually obtained the code for the 10 NES chip by falsely alleging to the U.S. Copyright Office that the code was needed in a copyright infringement suit. Uh-oh. Shenanigans. Yep. So with this new code in hand, they created their rabbit chip and began mass producing black cartridges with the stolen programming code. Now, this led to a court case between Atari games and Nintendo, in which Atari alleged Nintendo did not have the right to copyright their code for the 10 NES, and that using this was under the the clause of fair use if they were able to crack it. It was basically kind of an antitrust lawsuit against Nintendo. And Nintendo alleged that Atari had violated their copyright by reverse engineering the code. So that was kind of the battle between them, right? Through reviewing the facts of the case, a district court ruled that Atari was not able to reverse engineer program code for their use. But that ruling itself within that district court didn't stick when a federal court overruled that. They said that Atari had the right, more or less, to reverse engineer the code from the 10 NES chip. However, it came to light that Atari had attained the code through dubious means, and therefore they were not covered under fair use (laughs) under the legal doctrine called unclean hands, which prevents plaintiffs from making false claims in court and that kind of thing. So essentially, this became a wash, realistically. Atari sues Nintendo because they they have a lockdown on the the market, and it's an antitrust lawsuit. Nintendo kind of gets away with being able to say that Atari can't make games on their system because 
Atari went behind everyone's back and tried to steal the code and, and, and successfully did. So what a freaking mess. <laughs> if they would have just played by the rules, they would have right. been fine. Right. But that actually is kind of indicative of how they really operated. You know, uh, they were kind of playing by the seat of their pants and uh, willing to cut corners as far as uh, the marketplace went in order to, to get their games out there. And it even to the point where they were bringing Sega games over to Nintendo consoles. I mean, Afterburner is a classic example. That's a Sega game. Mm-hmm. And now it was available on the NES. And that was a big deal. But the next case that we'll talk about has to do with probably the most famous Nintendo case, uh, which is Tengen versus Nintendo for the rights of what game? Tetris? Tetris. Tetris. So if we think about Tetris, I'm sure everyone's familiar. Everyone's played some iteration of Tetris, whether it's on your phone, NES, Game Boy, whatever. It's out there. There are a million iterations of Tetris because it's such a fun game. But... Tetris didn't start off as, you know, some Japanese developer looking to create a new puzzle game. The inception of Tetris started in Soviet Russia by researcher Alexei Pajitnov. Soviet Russia isn't known for making video games. In fact, they banned a lot of the video game systems. I had a friend of mine who lived in Estonia, which was part of the Soviet Union at the time, and he didn't grow up with an NES. So I, I was asking him, oh, yeah, you know, I... Uh, I'm a big collector of Nintendo games. And he's like, oh man, I only played PC games because we didn't have the Nintendo in the Soviet Union. I was like, whoa. But when you look at the Soviet Union, their distribution model when it came to software is similar to kind of how id Software did in the 90s where they did shareware, where basically people would kind of swap cards with each other with the game copied on it. And you you would give it to a friend and that person would give it to a friend. It wasn't about necessarily making money for it, but Tetris became this just phenomenon. It seemed like almost overnight. And eventually it caught the eye of a gentleman by the name of Robert Stein, uh, who was a software executive that worked out of the country of Hungary, which Hungary at the time uh, was often uh, used to distribute products from the east to the west. So uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar, of course, with the Rubik's Cube. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That went through Hungary as well as a eastern product that made itself became popular in the west. And Stein kind of saw this. He was in a, uh, a cafe talking to a guy who had it playing up there, asked him about it and uh, saw the kind of the majesty that was Tetris and thought to himself, I really need to get this game. Uh, so Stein ended up bargaining with Pajitnov for the rights for Tetris so that he could sell it to Western audience. But due to kind of a lost in translation situation, uh, Stein thought he had the rights when he didn't. He said, I would like to get the rights for this computer game. And, Pajanov's response was more or less like, uh, that sounds good. Not to say, I agree, you have the rights for this, was he was basically saying more or less like, that sounds like a good idea. Let's talk about this more. So all of a sudden, Stein thinks he's got these rights. And he started to sub-license this out to uh, many other Western and Japanese companies without really having the right to do so. So this led to an interesting interaction between... Elorg, which was the company in the Soviet Union that owned the rights to Tetris, and a gentleman by the name of Hank Rogers of Bullet Software, uh, which was based out of Japan. So Hank actually programmed a version of Tetris for the Nintendo Famicom. Through Bullet Software, it was one of their better-selling games. I think they sold 30,000 units when it first came out. And Hank really wanted to kind of get the rights to the Game Boy version 
of Tetris. So what his problem, his thought was, you know what, I'll go to, to the Soviet Union, I'll get in contact with the people who own the rights for this, and then you know we'll get them so I can bring them back to Nintendo and make a butt ton of money. <laughs> the only problem is when he showed up to Elorg, they had no idea what he was talking about. The fact that he had a version of Tetris and that he was selling it. They're like, you don't have the right to sell this game. This is our game. (laughs) Right? Exactly. And so he went through the whole process. He was like, all right, so I got the rights from this person, from this person, and showed him the tree that eventually led to Robert Stein. So naturally, Elorg was like, you need to chill for a second. (laughs) We got to get in contact with Stein. They brought Stein in. And actually, interestingly enough, Hank Rogers, because he pointed the whole thing out and he told them a little bit about what their contract was about. He actually helped them bargain a deal with Stein where Stein would get rights to the home computer versions of Tetris. So he'd be able to sub license those out. And then what ended up happening, which is fairly interesting at the time is that Atari Nintendo and Hank Rogers were kind of all negotiating pretty much around the same time for rights for Tetris. It was hugely popular and they really wanted to get it. So what we ended up seeing is that Atari got the rights for the stand-up arcade version of Tetris. Now, the language was a little loose, so they tried to to kind of make it sound like it was uh, also giving them the rights to the NES version. But in April of 89, uh, Tengen ended up suing Nintendo, claiming that they had the rights <laughs> to distribute Tetris right Jeez. on the NES. And Are Nintendo countersued it. Right. <laughs> Nintendo countersued, uh, citing that infringement on trademark as well. So they were kind of, they, they, they were back to tit for tat. Not, you know, like a year apart from each other. <laughs> <laughs> so in June of 89, uh, a month after the release of Tengen Tetris, uh, U.S. District Court Judge Fern Smith issued an injunction barring Tengen from further distributing the NES game and further ordered all existing copies of the game be destroyed. And as a result, 268,000 Tetris cartridges were recalled and destroyed after only four weeks on the shelves. So come to find out they did not have the rights to Tetris. (laughs) (laughs) So by the time of the court order demanding Tetris cease distribution of the game and destroy all remaining copies, roughly 100,000 copies or so uh, of the game had been sold. And now it's it's essentially it's a collector's item, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what... I know, Donnie, you don't like this game, but I saw some interesting reviews on this. So for one, the game, according to uh, a few different avenues. So, for example, OneUp.com refers to it as the superior version of Tetris. (laughs) (laughs) Now, IGN, though, has placed the Tengen version at number 48 on their list of top 10 100 NES games noting its superiority uh, to the official Nintendo version, which did not make the list. Which one spawned a championship? <laughs> <laughs> which one spawned a yearly championship? The nerd happen. rage. Feel the nerd rage. <laughs> I will tell you from everybody I know that competitively plays Tetris, they much prefer the Nintendo version. <laughs> so kind of wrap things up, you know, I got to give credit to Tengen for having the, the, the Calhouns, if you will, uh, to take on the big N. However foolish it ended up being, but uh, eventually Tengen was brought out by Midway Games in the second half of the 90s and eventually was discarded. So, you know, the overall thing is, 
you'll be missed. Tengen Atari <laughs> games, you know, we need more companies that are willing to take on those Goliaths in the gaming industry is what I think. So uh, thank you for attending today's lesson. Huge thank to Norm, the gaming historian, for some of the information of today's lesson. Uh, just a reminder, if you have any ideas for a story that you'd like to hear, send us a message at gamersweekpodcast at gmail.com and we might feature your suggestion. So thank you for listening to episode 26 of Gamers Week Podcast and a big uh, thank you to the, what? 28, episode. 24, 26, 210, 212, whatever. What are numbers, right? Thank you for listening to episode 28 of Gamers Week Podcast and a big thank you to the Retro Game Club Podcast, the Leadest Podcast, and Love Retro BTW for sponsoring this episode, as well as Grid Studio for sponsoring our giveaway. Don't forget to check out their links in the show notes. If you want to connect with Gamers Week, follow us on Twitter at Gamers Week PC. Email us at gamersweekpodcast at gmail.com. Visit our merch store at gamers-week-podcast.creator-spring.com. Or if you want to, do it the easy way. Follow the link in the show notes. Join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gamersweek. Finally, since you made it all the way to the end of the episode, please leave us a rating and a review to let us know how we did. We really value your feedback. And while you're there, consider subscribing to on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Oh, and just a heads up, we do have new merch on the merch store. We have oh, we? Gamers Week podcast tank tops sun's out guns out wherever you want to rep the uh, <laughs> podcast whether it be at the gym down at the rec center at your kids baseball game grab a tank top enjoy the summer and listen to the gamers week podcast perfect <laughs> it's the same spot every time <laughs> i know i can never get through it like I was expecting just a little bit further. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me take my headphones off so I can't hear you guys. You made it even less far. <laughs> Damn you, Andy Griffith. Damn you. You kind of suck. <laughs> <laughs>